those who know me best know that one of my great f- flaws and faults and something that the Lord has been trying to work on me uh, for many, many years now, and I've just been a bit stiff-necked and hard-hearted to, to yield to it, is that I, I don't hand out compliments as often as I probably should. Like, I, I, it's really like, it's not that I'm not appreciative of good things that I see happening or good things I see people doing. It's just something that I've never really cultivated in my life. And, you know, I've been convicted over that for years and slow trudging toward trying to be more complimentary to people. And so whenever I do it, whenever I actually do give a compliment out, those who know me well enough know why, like, that's, I'm not just, you know, blowing smoke. Like, this is a real deal. Like, I really am moved enough to say, wow, this is great. And I know I'm starting to sound like a broken record, but man, our praise team is amazing. Like, they're so great. Like, I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor at Sylvania Church. There's not one I've heard that's better. And there's some that like make money on the radio, like they they do stuff at church and then they like cut albums and they get played on. They are not even close to what you get to experience every Sunday morning. And it's ridiculous. Like, thank you guys for that. That was great. All right. So Psalm 46. So I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning with the psalm. Um, and those of you who've been kind of with us for a while, you know, we're walking through the second book of the Psalms each week, a different Psalm. And, um, um, I, I want to do something that's, that's a little outside of what I usually do. And I'm going to take the first little part of the sermon. I'm going to be kind of technical and I normally don't do that. So if you're a guest, if you're a visitor, if this is the first time you've ever been here or you've only been here like once or twice and you're like, wow, that, that seemed kind of technical. It's not normally that way, but it's important for this to happen so that we can kind of get a feel for how the Hebrew Psalms actually work. And so we know that the Psalms are poetry. We know that most of them were songs that were sung. So they were poetic songs that were sung together for the collection of worship for the nation of Israel throughout various ages and times and that sort of thing. So I want us to see this morning before we get into the sermon proper a clear pattern of Hebrew poetry because Hebrew poetry for the most part had a very recognizable structure to it. It gets lost a little bit sometimes in our English translations of our Bibles, but there's a way that they would often structure the the poem or the psalm itself. And it was some reasons why they would do that. The chief reason being not everybody had a copy that they could just go get pick up and read. That was not the way that it was, nor could they just pull out their, you know, pocket encyclopedia of the interweb and pull up and read the Psalm. And they had to have it set to memory. If they want it to think about it, if they want it to talk about it, if they want it to sing it, if they want it to engage it outside of a standard worship environment where someone was reading it to them, it had to be up here. And I don't know about you, But if things have a natural pattern, a kind of flow to them, where it's like, okay, this happens, and then this happens, and then that happens, it's easier to remember. There's a reason why people who claim they're incapable of memorizing things, usually, but not always, but usually, are very capable of recalling song lyrics. 
because it has a pattern. Usually has some sort of a verse setting, maybe with a rhyme scheme, some sort of a hook or chorus, some sort of rhythm or meter to it that makes it bounce in the head where you're kind of moving across the words and it commits itself to memory. Pretty much all, not all, but pretty much all of the Psalms are like that. But they don't feel that way in English. So what I want to do is I want to take one this morning that very clearly represents a pattern of Hebrew poetry. And I want to show you how this happens. So that's the technical part. And then we'll use that pattern to actually do the real sermon itself. But I just want to have like a quick educational lesson on the technique of Hebrew poetry. Everybody's like, wow, that sounds Dreadfully drab. Hopefully it'll be super exciting, though, by the time we get to how that can help us to, like, commit these things to our minds. So I want you to see what's going on here. So Hebrew poetry is often set to a structure that's known as a chiasm. Okay, and I'm not going to get into what chiasm means. Just that's what it's called. Okay, and usually this follows kind of like an ABBA pattern. This should be coming up hopefully on the screen. Yes, there it is. Okay, so it's like an ABBA type pattern. It is a pattern that's known as either inverted or reverse repetition. Okay? All right. Like I said, starting out super technical. But I'm going to break down for you uh, what that looks like in this song. And it's going to be on the screen. You can put it in your notes. And then I want to challenge you to take some other psalms and do this with it. See if you can see it. Because it's in a lot of them. And then if you want a super big challenge... I don't think that this is true. I know that this is true because I've mapped it out personally. The entire book of Revelation is actually structured as a Hebrew poetic chiasm. The whole book from chapter 1 to chapter 22. You can find this pattern in the whole book. So if you want a super challenge... This afternoon, when you're just kind of chilling, watching the football, break out the book of Revelation and form it up in an ABBA pattern. It'll be great. All right. So that's because that's what everybody wants to do on Sunday afternoon. So I want you to see how this works. So let's do the A. We're going to get all the way down to D and then we'll break back out to A. So A talks about strength in the psalm. So verse one, God is our refuge and strength. Our very present help in trouble. So there's a concept here in this first verse. We're going to call that A of the poetic structure structure of strength. Okay. Then the next step in the B section is for us to don't fear. Don't be afraid. Verse two. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change. Though the mountains should slip into the heart of the sea. Now, really here, the second part of verse two goes into our third structure, which is C, the idea of a catastrophe happening. So when you go midway through verse two, though the mountains should slip into the heart of the sea and then continue in verse three, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling, uh, at its swelling pride, that would be pretty catastrophic. Like if you were there when that was happening, I don't know if you've ever been around a large body of water with a mountain next to it. It would be pretty terrifying and catastrophic if suddenly that mountain started shaking, breaking apart and falling into that large body of water. Pretty catastrophic. So there's a catastrophe that happens. 
Then D, the next pattern in, and then we start working our way back out. D, verses 4 through 6, we see the work of God and his victory over opposition. Notice here in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The The holy dwelling places of the Most High. And God is in her midst. She will not be moved. So God's doing this great work. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations made an uproar and the kingdoms tottered. And he, God, raised his voice and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. And so we'll pause there. So we see this great work of God in verses 4, 5, and 6. And a little bit in the beginning of verse 7. And we see that he has this victory over opposition. Now, not uncommon to Hebrew poetry, there's a sharp shootout back to the A again. Notice what it says in verse 7. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. The notion of strength again. That very first thought that we had. So we're singing this song and we're singing about God's great strength. And then we're singing about how we shouldn't be afraid. And we're singing about how we shouldn't be afraid even in the midst of great catastrophe. And we're singing about how even in the midst of great catastrophe, God is at work and has victory over his oppositions. So let's talk about how God is our great strength. We're always cycled all the way back to the very beginning notion, the A notion. Now watch what this Hebrew poem does. It does repetition in reverse. It starts with D that we just did and moves backwards. Notice here in verse 8. There's this idea of God being at work. And having victory over his opposition. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Who has wrought desolations in the earth. God, who is working, has overthrown his opposition. That's the idea of making desolations in the earth. He has overthrown his opposition. So we see this repetition of a theme. And then how does that happen? Look at what happens in verse 9. He makes the wars to cease. So it's still a little bit of that God's at work. And he breaks the bow and he cuts the spear in two and he burns the chariots with fire. So if you're in the middle of a war and you're on the other side and your bows get broken, your spears get snapped and your chariots get melted. Guess what you just experienced? A catastrophic event. It's catastrophe. If you're in war, that's a catastrophe. So we had a natural catastrophe in the first one and a warfare catastrophe in the second one. So we move to the sea notion of catastrophe. But what should happen if we're even in the midst of this? We're observing this. Some of your translations say, be still. The NASB says, cease striving. Cease striving and know that I am God. In other words, don't be afraid. Don't fear. So we move back to the B pattern. And then how does it close? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is what? Our stronghold. The notion of strength. And so you have this beautiful pattern that helps you to learn and know and memorize how this psalm and this song flows out. Let's sing about God's strength. Let's sing about how we shouldn't be afraid because our God is strong. Let's think about how even in the midst of great catastrophes, God is at work and has victory over his oppositions. Yes, indeed, our God is strong. And yes, even though uh, God is at work and yes, he's overthrowing his oppositions. And yes, there may be catastrophes that we experience in life. Yet we should not be afraid. Why? Because God is strong. It's this beautiful pattern that's built into the Hebrew 
poetry that helps you remember. And likely, just hearing it like that this morning, a lot of you will walk away and have a rough go of, in your mind, what Psalm 46 is all about. Because you've seen the pattern now. And like I said, most Psalms are like this. It just kind of gets lost in English translation. Because a lot of times what happens in the Hebrew, there's also some patterns of starting with the same letter or using the same word or catching the same phrase to where it catches even better in the mind than it does in translation. So let's use the structure. Let's allow the structure to educate us about what we need to see about the glory of Christ because that's what we've been doing with all of these Psalms all the way through. So let's start with the main theme. God is our strength. It's found three times in the psalm. It's the hook, if you will. It's the chorus, if you will. It's the main thought of the song, if you will. So it starts with God being our strength. In the middle, it's a declaration that God is our strength. At the end, it's a declaration again that God is our stronghold. He's our refuge. He's our stronghold. He's our strength. He's the one where we find power. Now, friend, hear me this morning. Whatever you're going through, if you are truly and genuinely struggling through it, you're having a hard time with it. Part of, not the whole, but part of what's causing you to have such a great struggle is that somewhere in the midst of your trial, your your spiritual vision has been turned away from the truth that God is your refuge and stronghold. No matter what you're going through, if it, if it feels as if it's about to crush you, part of the feeling of the, of the weight of your circumstances is that you are trusting your own strength or the strength of another Rather than the true, unadulterated fact that God himself and God alone is our refuge and our strength. And that's where the psalmist lands here. Three main spots. The main concept of this song that the nation of Israel is singing together. God is our refuge and strength. That's beautiful. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. God, of, The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. God is our strength. Not your bank account. Not your health report at the doctor. Not your place in the community. Not your place at your job. Not the, the stability of your family. None of those things are your strength. All of those things, ask Job, can be taken from you in a moment. What remains constant in your life as a believer is the foundation that is the Lord. Upon which Jesus says, you should build your house so that when the storm comes, the house will not be knocked down. There's a great foundation of strength to be found in who God is, not who we are. So that's the first thing that we see from this psalm. Second, because that is true. And this morning, I'm not speculating with you. I'm not saying that might be true or we hope that that's true. That is true. The rest of the psalm doesn't make any sense if you don't believe that that's true. 
that God is our strength and our refuge and our stronghold. Since that is true, as such, we should not fear. We should not be afraid. Now, literally, not an exaggeration, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times in various and sundry ways in the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, there is a mandate given to people who call themselves the people of God to not be anxious, to not worry, and to not be afraid. Why do we keep being told this over and over and over again? Because we, as fallen, broken human beings, tend toward being anxious and worried and afraid. Because it's very easy for us to turn our eyes away from the truth that God is our strength, regardless of how bad our circumstances are. And we must be reminded constantly... How great God is in spite of what we're going through. And that as such, we really do not have to be afraid about what we're dealing with. Now, if it were a basic, simple, easy lesson, we'd only be told a couple of times. Just a couple of times. The reality of it is is that on average, you catch this lesson about every fifth page in the Bible. (laughs) Like it's there a lot. You guys got to stop worrying. You guys got to stop being so afraid. You guys got to stop being so anxious about everything. You got to trust God more. You got to stop trusting yourself so much. You got this over and over. I mean, Jesus hammered his disciples with it all the time. They woke him up from a nap. Doesn't that drive you nuts? People wake you up from a nap over some nonsense. Now, In their mild defense, they thought they were going to drown. I mean, if one of my kids thought somebody was drowning, I'd be okay with them waking me up. But they were like, we're going to perish. Like, we're about to die. You're just over here sleeping. And in my spiritual imagination, I see Jesus kind of wiping the sleep out of his eyes. And he walks over the sides of the boat and he says, shh. And the water just stops. And he's like, man, y'all got no faith. And he probably went and fell back asleep. If I, and just in my spiritual imagination. And, and of course, these dudes are just marveling, it says in the text. Understatement of the year in the Bible. They were just marveling at the, what kind of man is this? Well, he's the kind of guy that's going to wake up, tell the ocean to shut up and then go back to sleep. That's what he's going to do. And that's the kind of God that we serve. That's the level of strength and power our God has. And as such... We should not be afraid. We should not be afraid. Which then moves naturally. Again, it's a memory thing. It moves naturally into the third point. What was our C point of the poem? God is our strength. And as such, we should not be afraid. Regardless of the severity of our circumstances. Notice how it starts at the beginning section. The first C insert. Even if the mountains were to fall into the sea, that's pretty severe. Like you're talking about cataclysmic world changing events. The surface of the earth is not going to be the same anymore. And you're right there in the middle of it. Something incredibly drastic is happening 
for this event to take place. And it says in our text, listen, God is our strength. And as such, we should not fear regardless of the severity of your circumstances. Listen, I don't know what everybody's going through. I don't know what you're dealing with. But I know that some of you, there's no way you get this many people in one room like this. And somebody somewhere in this room is not going through something really severe. That's just life altering and soul crushing right now. And you come in and you put on a good face. And you tell that righteous lie to everybody in the lobby. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. And then you're back of your mind going, my soul is dying. But glad to be here. And, and maybe a lot of people don't even know what it is you're going through. Regardless of your circumstances, you should not be afraid because God is your strength. Notice how it flows backwards, the opposite direction. That's beautiful how this works. Why? Okay, because God is our strength and as such, we should not fear regardless of the severity of our circumstances. Why? Because God is at work and has victory over his enemies. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. No matter what it is that you're battling against, whether it's an actual internal battle of some stronghold of sin. And I love that language in the Old and the New Testament, especially in the New Testament. It talks about there's a stronghold of sin that some people have. And I like that it uses that language. Why? Because that means you've made an exchange for the true stronghold that is the Lord. That is eternal and everlasting and almighty for some other stronghold that is temporal. And only satisfies for a short time. But will eventually Lead to your own demise. Or if it's some sort of thing that has happened to you, not because of you, but because we live in a broken and a fallen world. And I love that this comes on the heels of the Psalms that we've been looking at from the sons of Korah. Particularly two Psalms ago in Psalm 44, where it's like sometimes Everything's exactly as it should be, and yet you still get crushed by severe circumstances. Not everyone here has been there, but if you live life long enough and full enough, you will be there one day. You'll be there one day. I remember a a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of years ago. Amanda and I were not yet married. We were about to get married. We were engaged to each other. One of my aunts on my dad's side of the family, they were about to have a later in life child. And they were kind of excited about the fact that they were going to have another kid. And we'd all gotten together for a big holiday event. And people were excited about us being engaged. And they were excited about her getting ready to have another baby. And in the middle of all of that, we found out that my grandfather had been diagnosed with leukemia. And they gave him six months to live. He ended up living two because dances are just like that. But he ended up living two years you know, instead of six months because they're just stubborn people. But here we are in the middle of all, all this great stuff's going on. He just retired. He's ready to settle down on his place and enjoy the land and have the grandkids and everybody come and like, you know, do the stuff there or whatever. You got two years max, probably way less than that. 
out of nowhere, just the severity of circumstance just comes down. Everything's going great and everybody's loving Jesus and everybody's loving each other. And there's just a severe thing just happens. And it's like, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You recognize that God is your strength. And that you should not fear, regardless of the severity of your circumstances, because even in the middle of that kind of stuff, God is at work and he overthrows or has victory over his enemies. And the great enemies of God are sin and death. And in Christ, he has had the greatest victory over both of those. Which then gives us a great transition. I want you to see as we get ready to close this morning. Jesus as the fulfillment of this Psalm 46 notion of God being our strength. And as such we should not fear regardless of the severity of our circumstances. Because God is at work and has victory over his enemies. The Christian call is to live a Psalm 46 life. I encourage you to turn forward to the New Testament. To the book of Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans chapter 8. And I want to read for you an extended text from Romans chapter 8. And I want you to hear in more logical prose form the fulfillment of the poem we just saw in Psalm 46. And how Christ is the fulfillment of that and how the Christian in the new covenant reality in Jesus should live in fulfillment of this concept that is given to us in Psalm 46. So in Romans chapter 8, let's back it up from 15 to 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. And as sons, we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings at this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. By the way, if you want to see it. Paul is describing a catastrophic event. The fall of humanity into sin. And the cosmic unraveling that that created in our existence in the world that we live in. That's what he's talking about. And if you don't think that that's what he's talking about, all you have to do is read Romans 1 through 7. And you'll see that that's what he's talking about. Especially Romans 1.18 through the end of chapter 3. You see that that's what he's talking about. Okay. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it in the same way. 
Now, see if you can't see some of the themes of Psalm 46 emerging from verse 26 down to the end of the chapter. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And He searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of of the Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? God is our strength. As such, we should not fear regardless of the severity of our circumstances. Why? Verse 32, because he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things. Why? Because God is at work through Christ having victory over his enemies. It's almost like Paul read the Old Testament or something. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we're being put to death all day long. We are considered sheep led to the slaughter, which, by the way, if you want to know, is from the series of the sons of Korah Psalms that we've been studying. That's from Psalm 44. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what Romans chapter 8, the back half of Romans chapter 8 is about? God is our strength. And as such, we should not be afraid. Regardless of the severity of our circumstances. Because God in Christ is at work and he is overthrowing his enemies. And friends, that's where we get to live. That's where we get to live. We get to live in the victory that is found in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the way you have patterned your word. Thank you for the lessons that it teaches us. Thank you that its structure and its organization and the kind of literature that it is matters. Thank you that from even those technical things, we see your grace poured out. And Father, let this be the song of our heart today. That you, Father, are our strength. And that as such in Christ, you have called us to not be afraid. 
regardless of the severity of our circumstances. Because you, Father, through Christ, in the abiding presence of your spirit, are at work and you have victory over all of your enemies. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand as we sing a song of response.